Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hello, how's it going? And today we are concluding our three-part Chris Tucker series um, by talking about the third movie in our series, The Fifth Element. See here these different peoples or symbols of people gathering together the four elements of life, water, fire, earth, air, around a fifth one. A fifth element. This is a English language, French science fiction action space epic. Directed by Luc Besson. The cast includes Die Hard, Resident Evil, Smokey, Norman Stansfield, Bilbo Baggins, and Debo Samuel. I watched this movie on Amazon Prime Video. Joey, how did you watch it? I also gave my money to Jeff Kisses. Jeff Bezos. Here, have <laughs> some more money, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you need more, yes. <laughs> um, okay, well, um, why don't you give us the synopsis for The Fifth Element, Joey? Hello, darkness, my old friend. You've come to destroy us all again. Every 5,000 years or so. You arrive in planet form, and you beam radio waves to Zorg. But can we afford the fifth element? Beautiful. That brought Thank a you. tear to my eye. And it's amazing <laughs> how like, actually good of a synopsis that is. Uh, Joey, what did you like about the fifth element? What a world. It's what a universe, in fact. With great characters diverse, different, imaginative, all words that describe this movie. What about you? I liked, there was some good action in this movie that I enjoyed. Great utilization of Chris Tucker in a uh, supporting role, which I think is important to include in our Chris Tucker series. Really good sci-fi. Like you said, good world building. It's This is a, a vast and deep universe, uh, and this movie explores that without getting too self-indulgent and bogged down by the details. Uh, and also, I loved the wardrobe for everybody. It, very, it felt very oh, yeah. much futuristic, and uh, I, I loved to see that uh, on all of our uh, characters. Now let's talk about cons. Joey, what did you not like about The Fifth Element? What is our most consistent con in this podcast? Oh yeah, it's about women in movies being objectified. Wow, shocking. This is what this movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> also the dialogue, not a huge fan. Also the plot, not a huge fan. <laughs> well, I I felt the same thing. I couldn't I, I couldn't find the words for it, um, but I I didn't really love the dialogue. So I'm excited to hear your opinions on that. Um, for me, one of the biggest cons that was just offensive was the blatant product placement for McDonald's. So unnecessary, so just in your face and uh, annoying. So that yes. I have to, you know jot that down uh but also i didn't feel like the love story was developed well enough to warrant the role that love supposedly plays in defeating evil at the end um which made the end feel kind of unearned yeah uh, so that is i think that definitely goes along with women being objectified in this movie and we will get into that in our overall section joey take it away oh i got so much to say about this movie um, I can sum it up like how I feel uh, pretty simply. The things I like about this movie, I really, really like. And the things I hate about this movie, I really, really hate. So let's start with the things I liked. 
the world. And by the world, I mean the whole universe. Uh, interstellar aliens who are both our allies and enemies. Incredible sets full of color and life. And some really, really fun characters that fill the world with energy, give you a glimpse into the future that uh, Luc Besson has dreamed up for us. And of course, the characters are really great. I mean, Bruce Willis is like the classic everyman. Chris Tucker as the eccentric, charismatic, and insane Ruby Rod. Gary Oldman, the powerful, maniacal John Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. Milo Jovanovic. Uh, okay, we'll get back to her in a minute. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's an epic, and it feels like an epic. The threats are large and vague. Uh, there's, a, there's ancient prophecies written in books. Like still in the twenty, you know, the twenty fourth century, we got books. Um, the most powerful people in the galaxy are all in play. You know, they're all converging toward the same goal. I love the scale of this movie and the depths of its detail. But there's there's a lot to be. Uh, I think we can criticize it for. First, the dialogue I think is seriously lacking in this movie. Even Zorg with his crazy outfit and hairdo um, is kind of bland it has kind of these most like uninteresting lines in a lot of times he has a speech about um a cool gun and he has that philosophical soliloquy which we'll get into a little bit later uh, about the nature of life and death but he doesn't have any cool lines where he's fighting guys or tricking them it's all kind of bland 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 and here's an example of that that i find a, a uh, especially egregious excuse me sir the council is worried about the economy heating up. They wondered if it would be possible to fire 500,000. I thought maybe from one of the smaller companies where no one would notice. Like one of the cab companies. Fire one million. But 500,000. One million. Fine, sir. Sorry to have disturbed you. So one thing that I think is interesting about this clip, uh, first of all, the sound design in this movie is awesome. It did win awards. Um, but the uh, it's your first introduction to Zorg, right? And you see him walking down there with the limp, and he's got like this, you know, kind of spooky demeanor and everything. It's in the dark corridor. You then can't this guy, see his face. Right, yeah, this like guy who you never see you. again in the movie, he shows up and he's like, we need to fire 500,000 people. And he's like, why don't we fire 1 million? It's like, what? Like, okay, I guess this, like, establishes him as someone who, like, is cavalier about human life. But, like, I don't know, firing one million people just because, like, it doesn't well, really well, make any sense. It's because the economy is heating up? What does that mean? Is it, like, <laughs> it's getting better? So it's, like, we don't want a good economy, so fire people for no reason. Right, I, it, it makes no sense. And, like, like uh, clearly he has a lot of power. Like, it, it establishes a couple of things that are useful in this. But it doesn't, it, like, it's like kind of a nonsense like piece of trivia about him it's not not really like a it's not like this comes back later the only time it, the only thing that this ties into is perhaps uh or no you know you do get the you you do find out that uh uh dallas does work for zorg technically he works for the zorg industries or whatever so he when he gets fired it's he's part of that one million that got fired right uh, you're, you're assuming um but it's still like like what is this uh what does this tell you about your character, right? Like, oh, he's so cavalier about this or something. Like, or he just doesn't like. It's just a number thing. Like, oh, let's fire what five hundred thousand people. That sounds bad. How about one million? Wow, you know. Why fire five hundred thousand when you could fire one million? It yeah. really is like that, though. Doctor I mean, you're Evil. doing the Doctor Evil thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it <laughs> seriously is like that. It's like a cartoonish version of evil, which, like, I don't know. I I think this movie doesn't do enough to make him seem like that big of a threat as much as he just seems kind of goofy 
definitely um, no i i feel the same way like especially like he's definitely a he's clearly a bad dude right that's right. how they they make him seem but like um and i mean he takes advantage of the mangalores by like saying that they're refugees from the government so they're kind of desperate so he kind of you know exploits them for that and like you said he fires people for no reason essentially so that's bad right that's mean or whatever but like <laughs> ultimately he's motivated to do pretty much everything he does because of the threat of the ultimate evil you know like the the mr shadow as he calls him which is like the big dark thing in the sky literally has his phone number and will make him bleed <laughs> out of his head if he doesn't do what he says so it's like yeah how bad of a guy really is he he's being pushed in one direction this whole movie and right, right, right isn't he just doing what he has to do to survive you know so it's like he's not even that at the end of the day, is he even that evil? He's kind of just in a bad position and doing what he has to do. Right. In your attempt, in the attempt to like make this evil thing, this vague evil threat so evil, you take one of the other more interesting evil parts of your aspect of your movie and make it less evil. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think you're, I don't know. It gets confusing, I guess, if, if not just kind of painted over. You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, and I just want to comment also when you said that he had that cool introduction for like his gun or whatever. Like he yeah. he he talks about the Zorg Industries ZF one. It had a really cool introduction sequence, like like watching it unfold like that, and him explaining all the different things it has to it. How did we not get to see the replay button used even yeah. once after this? Like that was such setup that I thought would be so cool to come back later, where it's like maybe that would be his undoing even like Zorg gets hit mm. once and he gets away and they're like replay, you know, or something like say some <laughs> line. Uh, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then, like the bullets chase him or something didn't happen. It just seemed like a really cool yeah. setup for no reason. Yeah. It is a really cool effect too, with all the bullets like curving and everything away from the guys, you know, it's a, it's neat, but it's not, yeah, it's not utilized any more than that. It's kind of a prop just to make Zorg seem more like a badass, which they don't even really utilize that much. Yep. So, um, yeah, and, and speaking of that, I know we, we made a connection to this in our last episode, our last episode with our uh, with uh, Chris Tucker series. But uh, this is the future of gun violence uh, as expressed. And you see, uh, you see Ruby Rod, uh, um, you know, holding a gun even. And uh, oh, I see. At, at the uh, um, at the expense of some gun violence as well. There's a whole shootout inside the opera house, right? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't hold up nearly as well uh, in yeah. this one as he does the commentary. On yeah, the commentary is not quite as clear as <laughs> uh, Friday, but I, I see the connection you you just made. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, trying to draw some lines here. Anyway, I got another 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 piece of dialogue that I find like also really annoying. Uh, this is between um, Corbin Dallas, our hero, played by Bruce Willis, and the diva after she's shot and she's laying on the ground dying. The stones. Where are they? In me. What? What? It might be a little hard to hear what she says there, but she says, in me. And then he's like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? And then it literally means they're inside her. Like, <laughs> it's like he spends like a couple of minutes just kind of like, like puzzling it. Like, what does in me mean? And then he just reaches inside <laughs> of this blue alien and pulls out four freaking ancient stones. It's like, wow, I guess she literally meant inside me. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know man uh like corbin in general is is pretty bland as well uh, although he's supposed to be kind of this normal guy that uh, that kind of makes sense um and they kind of make fun of how bland he is uh 
like with the introduction of Ruby Rod. And Ruby Rod is definitely the exception to this movie as far as the dialogue goes. Um, the, I, Ruby Rod is the most Chris Tucker character we have seen so far. <laughs> uh, practically jumping off of the screen in every scene he's in. Yes. And he's sort of as gender fluid and, and exudes this confidence and stage pre presence that is completely unmatched by anyone else in this movie. Ser I wrote down in my notes, this is where the, when he arrives back in the movie, this is where it goes to the next level. Because it's seriously like the whole tone almost shifts when he enters the room. And I got a, a, a small sample of this. I don't think we played enough uh, Chris Tucker dialogue in this podcast. In this uh, podcast, in this series, so yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna remedy that right here. Here he is, the one and only winner of the Gemini Crockett contest. This boy is fueled like fire. So stop melting, ladies, because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot, hot, hot. Right side, right heels, right hands, right on. Unbelievable! <laughs> <laughs> it's freaking awesome. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, like, it, like, like, I, I don't know. Like, he's a he's a mobile DJ in a way, right? He's got like a whole studio inside of his microphone or something. He's got like all these sound effects constantly going on, reverb on his voice, constantly like changing things on, doing like little bits and like singing songs. It's incredible. <laughs> um, and like, it's just nonstop. It's exactly the kind of thing you would expect from like like a almost like a like a if you take a youtube channel that's like geared toward children or something and like yeah, yeah, yeah. ramped it up to like a thousand degrees <laughs> of like the uh, like our attentions are so like uh shattered in the future that so only our entertainment looks like this where it's yes. like constantly stimulating just boom 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 never stops it's awesome it's so oh, yeah. cool <laughs> no especially because this at like this movie is already so wild and extravagant, but he's able to stand out against that. He, like he, he, like you said, he brings it to another level. Like yeah. it's easy to understand immediately why he's an intergalactic celebrity in this. Oh yeah, no, know? it's like it's so easy to see it, and it, and he, like he actually does have a bit of an arc to him, and a little bit of like like a characterization, even more so than some of the other characters, where he's like, <laughs> you know, he's like in this gunfight and he's like freaking out and everything and he's always screaming but he's also narrating the whole thing at yes. the same time <laughs> like he he's like the the military or like the the, guy, the advisors yes. of the president are able to identify the alien race that they're fighting based on Ru ruby rod's description of them, of them being ugly <laughs> and <how> they stink <laughs> It's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. And honestly, the way he broadcasts, like now that we've been doing Twitch streaming for a little while and podcasting for a while, like what an inspiration Ruby Rod is. Like, oh, yeah. Chris Tucker embodies this, uh, this you know, voice celebrity. And um, yeah, I, I think this is a great inclusion for our Chris Tucker series because we've seen Chris Tucker in a lead role in our first two movies mm -hmm. and we know how capable he is. He's very, he can do that. But in this film, we get to see how potent he can be when used in small doses. Ruby Rod is so over the top that it might be exhausting if we had a movie that was all about him. Personally, yeah. I think I would, I would love to see that. But <laughs> in general, I think that uh, it, it could be. In fact, th his role as Ruby Rod was apparently um, kind of polarizing. Some people thought it was too extravagant and weird and some people like people with brains loved it uh so 
So, but okay, but but knowing that, knowing how much uh, Chris Tucker brings any movie, this movie shows tremendous restraint in its ability to wait until the third act to fully reveal Ruby Rod to the audience. We got that little teaser of him at the very beginning where it's clearly Chris Tucker's voice doing the ad for the... uh, the competition or, or you know yeah uh, yeah the gemini raffle. competition or whatever it's called yeah right the lottery some sort yes and um but yeah the but the the fifth element is yet another example of a movie that sets chris tucker up to succeed by laying a basic groundwork for him to perform within and then allowing him to do the rest this is probably let like more of a structured uh character for him because there's a lot of things about ruby rod that are different obviously this is a sci-fi movie but they still allow that same transcendent Chris Tucker energy to exude from his character, and that's why we love to see Chris Tucker in any movie. Yes. That's exactly what we show up and for. I, and some of the trivia I was reading about this movie, they were talking about how they had to constantly restrain him because he always goes off script. And he would say, he would like do a line, and, they would, and then they would, he'd say, oh, no, I don't want to do that again. And then he would do it completely differently. And they were like, no, no, no. <laughs> You have to go back and do it the right way. I love <laughs> so like I, it was so Chris Tucker of him when uh, he finishes that that sequence we just listened to. He finishes his first broadcast and he all the guys are like telling him how green it was, and then he like tells yes. him bzz, bzz, like he buzzes him off and, and he goes to talk to Bruce Willis. He walks across the room to him and then he spins in the opposite direction to face him. Like he does like a free <laughs> sixty, and it's not even like shown up. It, you can barely even see it because it's like during a cut. But it's it's just that extra level that only Chris Tucker can bring to a character. And I loved it. Yeah. I love Ruby Rod's a great character. Oh yeah. And uh the uh Tying back into our Michael Jackson references, apparently they, uh, Ruby Rod was inspired, or the character was inspired by Michael Jackson and Prince. And they originally had Prince uh, slated to play this part, uh, but eventually settled on, on Tucker instead. So it's uh, yes, it all yeah, ties together. Uh, all of those things like matches together perfect. It's <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, um, and yeah, just to hammer that home a little bit more, like it's a it's a real credit to Bassan's world that it can support someone like Ruby Rod. It has the depth and the realness that someone like him could totally exist. And like Tucker doesn't eclipse the film, he makes it. And it's ultimately one of the strongest aspects uh, as, as an actor. It's totally his ability agree. To, to, to bring something like this to a movie, especially a movie that is, like you said, so extravagant. Definitely. I, it's not, it, you don't think, I, I don't think a lot of people think of The Fifth Element as a quote unquote Chris Tucker movie, right? Uh, because of he's not in the whole thing, but it, he is one of its strongest aspects, which is why yeah. we I mean, included this. I mean, he's one of the top billed actors and everything. And he yeah. he plays a prominent role in the second like part of the movie. You know, he's yes. there till, till the end. Well, yes, it is clear. You, I mean, you may not have needed him for the end of the movie. You know, you could have left him behind yeah. at the resort or, you know, gone our separate ways. But I'm glad they brought him to the end. <laughs> to save the world, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I still think that because, despite all of Tucker's charm and incredible dialogue, uh, the rest of the movie just doesn't have that, doesn't match that level. Um, and it cannot be, and that can't be more apparent with, than the plot. I, the plot is about as simple as it gets. Big bad thing is going to destroy everything. That's not good. How do we stop it? No big deal. We stop it by putting the things into place and then it just works. Evil defeated. 
it's like I know I'm just like being <laughs> like kind of facetious here, but it's literally not more complicated. Nah, than that. Yeah, it literally is that. And there's nothing <laughs> less compelling than invincible thing for, that came out of nowhere um, is going to destroy literally all life. It's like, right. Okay. It's so it's so unfathomable, and they do a good job of making it seem like this like threat. Like everyone seems scared of it, right? Which I think like is a compelling enough but it's not interesting in any way it's, it's seriously just in the background for most of it and Zor like most of the time you're like oh is zorg the villain of this movie oh wait i forgot there's like this giant planet that's like hurling toward earth i guess and it's like made of death i don't understand what it is or what it does um like i'm trying to think like big picture here like what like I'm trying to answer some basic questions your villain is a literal ball of death and wants to destroy all life why does it want to destroy all life uh not important uh where does it come from <laughs> Uh, it's always existed. Uh, how did it achieve its goal? It has some mysterious power that seems to have no limits, but it also needs some help from exactly one human man. Uh, what happens when <laughs> it's defeated? It comes back every 5,000 years. So, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I guess that's all you need to know. I, I, there's nothing more interesting you need about your villain, you know, in this world that so, has so many potential characters, storylines, and conflicting motivations. It comes down to this mysterious thing wants to kill all life. It's practically metaphysical. Like, it, it takes all of this stuff that Luc Besson built up into his world and says, no, it's not part of that. It's something else altogether, you know? It's like divine intervention. Yes. Except, like, except that, like, it would be metaphysical, except that the way you defeat it is, like, really scientific. You just put the little rocks in a circle, <laughs> and then it, it works. It's the ultimate MacGuffin. And while we are on the subject of pointless objects that have mysterious implied advancing power, let's talk about Lilu. Ooh, great transition. Great Thank transition. <laughs> Don't point it out. It ruins the transition. <laughs> <laughs> Mila, Mila Yovanovitch does really great with what she's given. She so embodies Lilu, and she shows real range in this character. Lilu is meant to be something of a contradiction with her wrestling with the world while um, also holding this immense burden, uh, which could be, could be really compelling and interesting. She finds a way to humanize this character and make her strong, yet worth protecting. But all of that is undercut by the fact that she's a literal human MacGuffin. She is so completely objectified in this movie, she may as well be an object. Ask yourself this question. Would this movie be any different if Lilu was played by a dog? I think it would make the final scene a little bit more alarming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, no okay. Let, actually, let's let's talk about that. So the problem with Lilu is her very presence and purpose in this movie. There's this great video on YouTube by a channel called Pop Culture Detective that identifies what happens to Lilu in this movie as a trope. A trope, which he claims in the video, does not have did not have a name until he created it. The name of the video and the trope is called Born Sexy Yesterday. <laughs> hopefully, you are already seeing where I'm going with this. But if not, I'm all too happy to explain it. Lilu, she is so naive. There's so much that she doesn't understand, uh, so much for her to learn. And yet, sometimes she displays this wisdom beyond her ages. Sometimes she just says or does something. You're like, damn, that's so true, though. Now, am I describing a person who I consider my equal, or am I describing a child? Throughout this movie, Lilu and every woman character, in fact, is objectified in increasingly disturbing ways. There's the McDonald's cashier who's wearing some sort of golden arches corset. The flight attendants are wearing skimpy outfits that show their midriff and plenty of cleavage. Even the ticket takers are wearing shirts that have their boobs cut out of them. It's egregious, but Lilu gets it worse than any of them. First, she's wrapped in thermal bandages. 
God, which barely cover any of her skin. She gets undressed in front of male characters twice. She gets soaking wet for standing in the shower. And throughout all of this, the men in the movie are constantly commenting on how perfect she is. Uh, oh, you think yeah. I got a, You don't think so I have a, cli a clip for this? I got three clips for no. this. Ready? Okay. Told you. Perfect. They really make her perfect. I know. Five nine. Long legs, great skin. You know, perfect. Uh, I see. And this uh, perfect fair, she got a name. Yeah. Lilu. Notice even in this scene where like Bruce Willis is kind of falling in love with her, and he is the only character that actually sees her as human for most of it. But but all, even that's kind of a a, a, a stretch. Um, he still refers to her plainly as a fair right like <laughs> anyway i got one no, more no. for you okay go i got one more for you ready i'd uh like to take a few pictures the archives this is from the general uh after he's after lilu is first revealed and he notices quite how perfect she is he says i need to take some pictures for the archives look this is not something this, this is not like a oh you know our like you know, we don't know how to write women, so we're going to, like, uh, you know, poorly write this woman character in this movie. This is, like, explicit sexualization and objectification of one of your main characters. You know, it's over and over again repeated, and it is, it makes your skin crawl, honestly. But I can go further. I can make you even more disturbed. Hold on, you got something to well, say, Well, what I was going to say is, it just, it straight up did not make sense to me why they kept all saying that to her. Like, I didn't even understand they were trying to objectify her to, as much as I was like, there must be some quality I'm missing that they're saying she's a perfect. Like, I thought she was invulnerable or something. Like, she had superhuman, because she punched through that unbreakable glass. So I was like, they must be. But that's not when they say she's perfect. They say she's perfect when they look at her body. Right. Well, and, and they just built her, right? So I figured they had some insider knowledge. I didn't. Like, Maybe there's something about her that she's like the full potential of a, what a human can be or something like that. You know, some sort of transcendent quality, not sure. just that I'm so horny right now that I think. <laughs> right. Well, I would I would I think that's a charitable reading. I think that would work in the context of the of the like reactor where they built her. Right. But for the other characters, Bruce Willis included, he has no idea that she's some sort of super. Oh being, yeah, right. No, it makes she's less just and less sense. Woman with red hair. It makes less and less sense the more I hear them say that. It it just it was just confusing at its very base and and disturbing at you know once you think about it. Yeah, there are basically two things that you know about Lilu. Two things that are told to you over and over and over again. The first thing is that she's very naive and childlike. The second is that she's unbelievably sexy. And if you aren't making connections between this and Leon the Professional yet, <laughs> just, just you wait. Luc Besson. <laughs> okay. The more you... Uh, this is the heart of the born sexy yesterday trope. Pop culture detective uses many, many examples. The fifth element is neither the first nor the last nor the biggest offender, but is a perfect example. The more you dive into this and examine it, the creepier it gets. See, this trope is not really about women. It's a trope about men. The men in these born sexy yesterday situations are often normal, ordinary earth dudes. They are only special to this woman because she knows nothing about the world, whereas he knows a great deal more. To quote the video, it is the ultimate student-teacher dynamic. He gets to be the most important, kindest, most affectionate, smartest man in this woman's life. And even though she's basically a child in many ways, it's cool because she looks like a very sexy lady. 
it's all it's actually really uncomfortable to come face to face with this idea i don't know if luke Besson is pushing a narrative here or if this is just some sort of fantasy out of a 16 year boy year old boys uh movie because this is what actually when he first wrote it was when he was 16 um but i do have a guess this is this is um a reflection of our world the success of a movie like this and the prevalence of this trope in all sorts of media is proof that is at a certain level we think it's okay we fetishize innocence and youth over experience and equality what really does lilo have to offer oh i love the way you speak gibberish like it's baby talk oh man i love the way she connects with four ancient pieces of alien technology and shoots a beam of light into space i find that so stimulating i would love to have a deep conversation about her uh, with her about her views and her of her role in the universe no what is desirable about her is that she is beautiful and that she knows nothing wow oh my gosh when you spell it out like that it's so obvious like it, it felt so hollow the ending scene where oh, yeah that he just he's like I love you, you know, and he ha it feels like he's forced into saying that because if he doesn't say that, she won't save all life. Right. Ever, like exactly. That's like, another part of it too. <laughs> like it sounds like she's just being like in this case, I'm not trying to make a generalization, but like in this case, she's just being dramatic mm -hmm. and he has to say what he has to say to get her to do what she has to do. Not that there's actually a love story that's being built up here or any reason for them to have any affection for each other beyond just normal. Like you're also a living being and we should save each other kind of thing. He should have uh, tried to blow on her first. Oh yeah. Not to mention why <laughs> did he try to kiss her on the couch earlier uh, too? Yeah. Like they're like, wake her up. He's like, all right. Well, that it's means this sexual idea, assault. Uh, yeah, it's this idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's this idea <laughs> of like, I'm owed a woman thing. You know, it's like, oh, I right. saved her, right? And she's gonna appreciate this for sure. Right? And later he's like, oh, I regret that. Like I shouldn't have kissed her or whatever. But it, it's it's played off as like a like first date mishap kind of thing. You know, right, where right. you're like, ah oh, man, you know, like. Uh, like that date was going really well and then I ruined it because I like went I was too forward or something you know like right, and right. then I was I got rejected and now I don't know how how we're going to proceed further that's not what happened you know what <laughs> happened was you kissed her while she was sleeping yeah i yeah i don't love it, <laughs> I don't love it. it's yeah. it's so it, honestly it's jarring right now cuz i did not make that connection to uh, leon the professional but I'm starting to question our our director here uh, and like what his motives are with making these uh, you know love stories because yeah. they're, they're too similar for me right now. <laughs> um, any, yeah. Anyways. So like, so so your 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 comments earlier about like oh like having a you know uh, uh, I'm surprised the female lead was not a child. I agree, she was a child, uh, and the fact that it was disturbing that he didn't that, it, that if she was a dog. Uh, would, would kissing her have been more disturbing? I think yes. I think it would have been the same amount as disturbing. So, <laughs> for the exact same reasons. Fair enough. Um, okay, well, I have one more thing I want to talk about in our overall section, and it does have to do with uh, editing, the way this movie is edited. Okay. Uh, and this happens multiple times. There's a really interesting way that the, these various sequences are edited together where the movie combines multiple scenes putting simultaneously in a way that almost appears that they're influencing each other. Uh, and a good example of this is when Zorg realizes that the suitcase that the Mangalores brought to him is empty. And we'll listen to that really quick. Listen. This case is empty. <laughs> what do you mean, empty? Empty. The opposite of full. 
This case is supposed to be full. Anyone care to explain? The Guardians gave the stones to someone that they could trust? supposed to contact this person in a hotel? She's looking for the address. Easy. Dot. It's, it's Planet Foston in the Angel Constellation. We're saved. I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, the, I like this is used multiple times in the movie, and it's used to great comedic effect and effective plot exposition. Um, yeah. And, and it's, you it's, know, it's the asking, it's Zorg asking a question and Lilu, you know, answering it in, the, in another scene. And um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's very noticeable. It's very intentional. And um, I don't know. I think, I think it's entertaining. Another notable time this happens is the simultaneous, like, Zorg goon explosion, uh, the female orgasm with Ruby Rod and the spaceship takeoff. Like, they all build at the same time, constantly switching scenes. And then they all you know, for lack of a better word, climax at the same time. And uh, I don't know, it's 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 satisfying. Yeah, yeah. The, no, the editing is really good. And there's a couple of moments where this is used. This one that you've, uh, you've uh, highlighted here is a little bit different than some of the other ones. But um, they, there's, there's other scenes that have a similar feel to them. One of them being very, one of the very first scenes when the uh, priest uh, is talking to the president who is talking to the general. And they're all, they can all hear each other because they're talking through long-range communications. But the scene constantly switches between them. And it's not like you're hearing the president's voice to the radio necessarily all the time. You're seeing him talk and then seeing the, the general respond from a different uh, perspective. So it's, it, it's kind of similar, but it's still like cut together with, with all these conversations happening together. There's another one that I thought was really good. Um, it was about, it was right after uh, Bruce Willis comes in. And, uh, and he says, I'm going to negotiate with the, um, the Mangalores, right? He comes in and he shoots uh, the, the one guy in the head. Um, and the guy says, uh, uh, where did you learn to negotiate with that? I have, I have that right here. Ready? You were right about one thing, Master. Oh, oh, this is not right. The negotiations were short. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was embarrassing. Let me, let me try that again. Oh, yes. That's not right either. Oh, my God. <laughs> you doing this on purpose? Here it is. Here it is. Anybody else want to negotiate? <laughs> Where did he learn to negotiate like that? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, I like that. I like that a lot. They do a good job with that editing. Well, yeah, no, it's throughout the movie. Even in the uh, the action sequence that's happening during the opera is another good example of right. this simultaneous action. So I think it's yeah, it's well done, um, and it's one of the distinct qualities of uh, the Fifth Element. Definitely. Um, okay. Well, I think that is going to cover our overall section. We can move on now to our cool Easter eggs. Uh, Joey, what do you have? Continuing our theme with uh, Luc Besson. Besson was uh, married to uh, Maywin Lebesco, who plays the role of the diva uh, when, when, the movie, when the filming convinced. However, he left her for Yovanovitch during filming. And Yovanovitch and Besson later divorced uh, in 1999. So... <laughs> wow this Luc Besson guy is quite a character uh, yeah um, 
so the divine language, uh, which is spoken by Lilu, is actually a sort of real language. It was written by Luc Bassan um, and later further refined by Mila Livanovich. And she had tr little trouble learning this because she's actually fluent in four other languages. The language only has 400 words. Um, so Bassan and Mila actually held real conversations, wrote letters to each other in the language um, as practice. And by the end of the filming, by the end of filming, they were both able to have full conversations in this language, even though it was kind of limited. Wow, so when she's speaking, cool. she's actually like saying something, I guess. It doesn't, it's never translated or anything. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'll play a sample of it right here. What's she saying? I don't know. Activate the phonic detector. It's um. I I would like to see like what the uh, what the words were and like how if it's like a full restructure or if it was just replacing words in English or French, you know. But um, I would love to it, see it, the letters they wrote to each other about how Luc Besson is going to divorce his wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and marry this girl yeah. instead. <laughs> Maybe that's a more compelling love story than we saw in this movie. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, so, I, uh, so Luc Besson largely uh, was, is responsible for most of this movie's, uh, like the way it looks and the characters and everything. But he did have a lot of help. He started making this, he started writing this movie when he was 16 and didn't finish it until he was 38. Um, there's a couple of French comic, uh, cre uh creators, one named, uh, Jean Giard and, uh, Jean-Claude Mazère. Uh, Jean-Claude Mazère actually, uh, wrote this book called Circles of Power. It's a comic book. Um, and in it, the, he has a flying taxi cab driver. Um, and that actually uh, in inspired, quote unquote, um, Luc Besson to change his, uh, Luke, uh, Corbin Dallas's profession from rocket ship worker to, uh, to cab driver as well. And he really liked the way that the New York, New York City looked in the movie, uh, so, or in, in the comic book. So he made that, he replicated that for the movie. Um, and there's also uh, Jean-Paul Gautier, Oh, sorry, Gautier, uh, who designed uh, over 900 costumes for this movie. Oh, wow. uh, and was responsible. There was one scene, I think, that had like 500 extras in it, and he had designed every single one of their costumes. Uh, so, like, including Ruby Rod's uh, iconic, like, flower dress and, like, the, uh, oh, like so the, the hairdo and stuff. It's so cool. Having yeah, these, so, it was such an interesting look of having, like, a, like, shoulder open out kind of, I don't know shirt <laughs> like yeah that that exposes the top of your shoulders but still goes beyond and above that uh so interesting felt it really does give you like an otherworldly feel it's like this absolutely it could only exist in a totally different uh universe even though yeah you know style and stuff exists here there's nothing stopping them it literally does exist here he wrote this or like they did it in this movie but um i don't know the the especially ruby rod's wardrobe i think goes above and beyond Oh yeah, this movie is what the Hunger Games wish it was, wishes it was. Ooh, you know? dang. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really impressive. The detail in this movie is one of the best parts. Well, um, yeah, I definitely love that. Um, actually, it's it's interesting talking about this movie, especially like with the time that it came out and the fact that it's not even an American film. Uh, this is apparently. Uh, at the time, it was the most expensive movie ever produced outside of Hollywood. Hmm. Um, which it was 80 million uh american dollars was the uh price and the like which was the highest visual effects budget for a movie at the time um so 
it, it, and I do think I do feel like it holds up for the most part the uh, special effects, especially because a lot of it is um, practical. You know, like the mm. aliens are just guys in suits. I actually read that the um, the goggles that some of the uh, what do they call them Mandalars or Mandalors? Uh, Mangalores, yeah, that they wear. They're, those goggles were just to obstruct the view of the human eyes underneath them. Mm. And it was just easier than doing CGI to, to clean that up, which I thought cool. is smart. I like when they do uh, practical effects. That's like the best use of CGI is when it's used in aid with other things. You know, yeah. That's why Jurassic Park looks so good. That was largely practical effects, but there was some CGI that aided in it and just covered up some of the like spots and stuff. Um, it does a big... It goes a uh, it goes a long way. Um, yeah, the, the aliens look great. Um, the the transformation between like heads and stuff that all is, it looks good. You know, there's um there, there's that scene with the the gun where you're shooting the bullets and everything, and they're all like spraying everywhere. That, all of that looks really good. Um, yeah, there are some like outside shots like of like you know perspective of like the planets and stuff that looks kind of funky. Um, but a lot of the uh, actual like things are real i mean new york city was actually a miniature that they made but some of the buildings were 20 feet tall wow so yeah it was a miniature that took them nine months to make it was insane so um yeah a lot of dedication to this movie um so let's talk a little bit about the the diva um so first of all uh, the diva is uh play she's the, the blue alien that sings the opera song uh, uh in the third act uh, it's played by a um, French actress named May Wynne, who was married to Luc Besson, as I mentioned earlier, but voiced by uh, Inva Mula Achako, who is an Albanian singer. Um, and so that wasn't actually May Wynne's uh, a voice uh, in the movie. And in fact, it wasn't really even Inva Mula Achako's voice either, because some parts of this uh, song had to be edited together um, in order to achieve what they wanted to achieve because the, the notes, the changing of notes was so intense that it was not actually possible to do it with a human voice. Um, so they actually like had her singing the notes individually and then spliced them together to create the song. Wow. It's really amazing. I mean, it's a, there's actually a clip on, on uh, YouTube of like the whole dance uh, with the song included with uh, her in the, in the costume. Uh, on, in front of a green screen it's amazing you should watch it it's just so uh it's like trans transgression i mean it's so amazing there's a it's so um it's such an amazing performance and so different from the rest of the movie too but it still feels like this culmination of everything that we've been seeing you know it's like the most extreme version of this in a way and uh it is really amazing the, the one woman character in this movie who's not completely objectified <laughs> well i thought it was i noticed it was interesting the look on bruce willis's face when the diva was singing and apparently that reaction was like as authentic as it could possibly be because that was the first time he had heard the song or seen uh the actress in full makeup and I thought they did a really good job of capturing that facial expression he had. Oh yeah, no, he looks amazed. He looks he looks like transported, uh, which is exactly how I felt watching it too. It's it really is amazing. Okay, well, um, I think that covers our Easter eggs, and we'll move on to our quotable moments now. And we've got just one. And uh, this is—I thought this was an interesting uh, bit of philosophy. Philosophy from Zorg here, uh, while he was having a conversation with the priest. So let's listen to that. Where are the stones? I don't know. And even if I did know, I wouldn't tell somebody like you. Why? What's wrong with me? I try to save life, but you only seem to want to destroy it. 
Oh, Father, you're so wrong. Let me explain. Life, which you so nobly serve, comes from destruction, disorder, and chaos. Now take this empty glass. Here it is, peaceful, serene, boring. But if it is destroyed, all these little things so busy now notice how this one is useful what a lovely ballet ensues so full of form and color now think about all those people that created them technicians engineers hundreds of people who will be able to feed their children tonight so those children can grow up big and strong and have little teeny wind children of their own and so on and so forth thus adding to the great chain of life Water. Fruit. You see, Father, by creating a little destruction... A cherry. I'm, in fact, encouraging life. In reality, you and I are in the same business. Cherish. This is an interesting quote. And um, Amazon Prime Video X-Ray, the, the like trivia feature that shows up on the screen while you're watching, brought up that this references the parable of the broken window, which I went and did some mm. research on. And essentially the parable of the broken window is this idea that destruction can create wealth um, and it can be beneficial for society. Because, and the example is that you have a broken window and even though that broken window is a problem, right, it's destruction of your property, it creates a job for someone to come repair the window and thus creates wealth right now the window repairman has money that he can spend at the barber and the you know getting a haircut and the barber now has money he can spend um somewhere else right and that continues and that creates wealth right um but if this this is a fallacy because if you spend money to fix the window you end up with a fixed window which is essentially what you began with but what you can't see is the opportunity cost of fixing the window instead of spending that money on anything else. The opportunity cost of a, just like a definition here, the opportunity cost of a use of a resource is the value of the next highest valued alternative of that resource. So you're actually not seeing what your the real price of that broken window. Disasters mm. do not create wealth. They destroy wealth. Those resources could have gone towards something you could have had in addition to having a fixed or non-broken window, like potentially a pair of new shoes. A job is created to repair that window, but a job isn't created for someone else like a shoemaker. Right. That is compelling. Yeah. So Zorg is way off here. It's just his uh, he's trying to justify his nefarious ways, uh, but do not be fooled. Because this is a well-known fallacy. Right. But, I mean, so how does this, like, play into, like, weapons manufacturers? You know, like, oh, we like we need to create weapons because, like, we have all these people with jobs. And, like, uh, what were they going to do? Not have jobs? You know? Right. Like, we need them to create weapons. So, like, And then it doesn't really matter whether weapons are used or not. What matters is that we created them. Right. You know, you guys can do whatever you want with them. We don't care. <laughs> right. No, definitely. It's especially... When uh, that money could be used for something else, right? And and potentially right. could end up in jobs that are in something that isn't war, you know? So right. it's like, yeah, you have to do that um, cost analysis and decide what's more beneficial. Uh, right. Right. Because yeah. the cost of anything is also the cost of some of what it 
the uh, includes the opportunity cost. Exactly. Like what, what you didn't spend money on. Um, and right, if you're constantly fixing your windows, then you're not doing anything else. I th I've I always heard like the broken window philosophy is like the uh, like the, the exponential crime idea, which I've also heard is a fallacy. Where like a broken window in a neighborhood causes more broken windows to appear, which causes more crime to appear. Right. Because people think that because people aren't fixing windows, no one's going to enforce any of the crime or anything. I've heard um, that as well. But I I've also heard that that's not that's not like actually true and that it's, none of that actually us uh happens right it just sounds true you know right like it's yeah but it's not backed up by anything so um I, I don't know i thought this was a really interesting scene especially because it gives zorg an opportunity to be in the spotlight and be evil um, but mm. it's also like a really like it's so easy to tell that he's a charlatan and it's just an an, an an example or maybe just an opportunity to refute a charlatan and be like, look, he may sound convincing. He may do the glass breaking thing and you see the ballet of the uh, robots, mm. but don't be fooled just because he sounds convincing doesn't mean that he has a point because he doesn't. Well, how embarrassing would it be if one of those robots failed? <laughs> <laughs> well, he would just be like, well, now some technician can come and fix it, you know? Oh, That's this true. Is That's true. More destruction. This is perfect. Um, so. But he is refuted right there, too, because the, the priest, like, uh, what's his name? Cornelius, he, uh, he has to save him from choking on a cherry. And he's like, where's all your, you know, where's all your power now? Yes. And he's sitting there, like, banging on the, uh, the keypad, which I thought was pretty dangerous, considering he uses that keypad to blow up one of his goons later. Yes. You and, know? And, well, and what was his final? He was going to get that little animal to save him? Like, what was his plan? I, don't, I think he was just, like, mashing buttons and then something, like, he was hoping something would happen. He accidentally locked the doors and, like, so no one can come in. And I don't know. It was just a... Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, it was, well, he was, yeah, was and I, I, I think it's important to bring up, he is immediately refuted by the circumstances surrounding, like, what happens after he finishes his sentence. So, yes. um, I, I don't know. Altogether, I thought that was a pretty good scene. I agree. But, okay. Um, Joey, I believe you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. Deeper. So um, I saw this thing also on the Amazon X-ray, which I was not able to find any really good evidence for, but I still thought it was kind of interesting. So there's a lot of symbolism in this movie, like uh, kind of motifs related to shapes, um, specifically circles, triangles, and rectangles. Uh, the idea is like triangles are evil, rectangles are good, and circles are neutral. So for example, uh, the... Uh, like there's the they shoot those like bombs into the um the big sphere the big evil sphere and it comes they come in in a triangle shape and uh the uh and that's like supposed to like anger it right and it makes it even more powerful um there's the mangalore ships they're like kind of tri three shapes or whatever like they kind of look like triangles there's a bunch of triangles that show up in other uh, like at, like in drawings and things for like the um the elements um there's and then yeah, there's a bunch of those. There's also rectangles. So rectangles are supposed to like uh, embody um, Corbin Dallas. He's like he's shown framed behind doorways. Uh, when he saves Ruby Rod, he shoots a rectangle around him so that he falls down. Um, His apartment like a, is very rectangular. Right. It's all very. All, everything's kind of compartmentalized. Then there's circles. So circles are supposed to be neutral. Uh, so you see like the put the hands in the yellow circles thing with the um, with the police. Uh, you see that a couple times, and like the police are kind of a neutral party. Zorg like has a big circle. That he's kind of he's more neutral, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the thing is, like, I don't really know if this uh, this theory holds up that well because like 
rectangles, circles, and triangles are so generic as shapes. Like everything is going to be look like is going to look like them, and so it doesn't. I don't know if it matches up that well. It's kind of an interesting idea. One yeah. of the things I thought was a, was if this is true, would be really cool. Is that the uh, the elements, the actual little stones that they have to capture, are shaped like rectangular prisms, meaning that they are um, they're triangles uh, from one perspective, but rectangles from another. And they say like if uh, if uh, goodness or the fifth element stands in the middle, then it will destroy evil. But if evil stands there with the four elements, then um, everything will be destroyed. So it's like potentially good or bad depending on how you look at it. Which is kind of one of the themes of this movie. Of yeah. Like, like, uh, how, like it's, it's kind of your perspective. Like, are humans good or bad? Are they worth saving? I don't know. And, but, anyway. and you could also just go at the base of like, these stones work either way, good or bad. They have triangles and rectangles. And exactly. it works for good or evil. Like, right, right. It depends on how you look at it. So, yeah, I, or how they're arranged, I guess. So I thought that was kind of interesting. One of the more interesting, one of the kind of deeper sections of this movie actually is related to the fifth element. So, I thought this was something that they may have invented for this movie, but it's not. It's actually something that's existed in mythology for a really long time. Actually introduced by Aristotle back in like when they were doing, dealing with the classical elements, earth, water, air, fire. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> when he, it's something called, it has a bunch of different names. One of them is the fifth element. Sometimes it's called the quit, the quintessence, qu ah, sorry. <laughs> the quintessence, quince, ah, man, I can't even say Quintessential? No, not quintessential, but close to that. Quintessence. Okay. Quintessence, or the aether. You may have, you may know aether as like a, uh, um, a theory about space. Um, they used to think that there was a medium like air in space called aether that we couldn't, or ether that we couldn't see or detect in any way, and that's what everything moved through. Now we know it's just there's nothing basically, but um, there's still kind of people that think about use ether as a as a term. It's basically like the uh, the soup that everything sits in. I see. And it's what connects the four elements together. It's the bridge between the elements. Um, there's a Roman sophist uh, nicknamed the Athenian. Um, uh, his name is Philostratus. Uh, he has a book uh, that talks about the fifth element and how it is, um, how it connects the uh, four other elements together. Um, and this actually shows up again in Frozen 2, actually. Uh, they, they have a, uh, there's this whole thing where, uh, they go into the for the mysterious forest and they have to tame the four elements. And the way that they do that is it turns out that Elsa is the fifth element. She is what brings them all together and can help control these. Wow. This world or so yeah, it's a, um, it's kind of a ancient mythology kind of thing uh, back from the classical times in, in ancient Greece. Uh, so it's pulling from at least some like ancient history in a way. So. I would love to see Ruby Rod in the next Frozen movie, Frozen Three, <laughs> featuring Ruby Rod. Come on, you give him a whole oh, song. Man, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that'd be awesome. <laughs> well, I think that we are approaching the end of this episode, and as we do at the end of every single episode of Affable Chat, we are going to deliver our ratings. What, Joey? Do you want to go first? Yeah, I give this movie a kiss while you're sleeping. Oh my god. <laughs> my rating for this movie is I think it is green. So green. Crystal green. Any kind of green you want. Tree green. Emerald. Pond green. It's just green, baby. <laughs> awesome. And um 
Okay, well, that's going to wrap it up for The Fifth Element. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing The Death of Stalin. Excellent. So, yes, it will bid farewell to Chris Tucker. We had an amazing series, the long-awaited Chris Tucker series. We finally did it. I'm super happy. And um, honestly, I didn't know it was possible, but I think I have an even greater appreciation for Chris Tucker now. I certainly do. And, uh, uh, yes, he is. Uh, he is transcendent. It's it's amazing watching him perform on screen. Definitely, uh, and I'm looking forward to the next one. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and wherever you listen to us, make sure you leave us a review. It does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. We have the same handle on all three at Affable Chat, or you can send us an email affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel. It's called Affable Chat. Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. Just go to twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. Uh, we're live, like I said, at every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. Or you can just catch a past broadcast. They are saved there for two months. Oh, wow. Yes. and uh, oh, But the best best way to do it is to be there live so you can chat with us. But that's going to do it for uh, this episode on the fifth element for Affable Chat. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.